Good morning, food and wine lovers of the world. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. And today's program is uh, um, brings you um, really good resources for great food, great meat, I might add, and wine. Uh, starting with the wine, we'll be talking to Randall Graham. Um, who is one of our absolute favorite wine He's probably the, the smartest world. guy in the industry that I know. <laughs> and so creative. He's, he's semi-creative. He's always got a new project, and we're going to talk to him about his latest, which is um, his new role with Gala Wine, kind of an unexpected turn, uh, and his new wine called the line called The Language of Yes. How about listening to Randall and get some sense of the excitement of what's going on here? Well, Randall Graham, um, formerly of Bonnie Dune Vineyard, um, and the the creator of the um, Intelligentsia advertising. (laughs) I'm so glad that you're not slowing down. You have a whole new project we're going to talk about. I was, yeah, I was reading that you are now, and it's a turn in the road that I never would have anticipated, but it makes perfect sense. You are now on with Gala Wines, and uh, you're going to talk to us about what you're doing there, and also your uh, whole uh, venture with the language of yes. Start with, how, how did you end up with Gala? Kind of a long story, but there were a number of points of connection between Gallo and myself, friends of the family, and I got to know them socially. Oh, good. And um, so just sort of one thing led to another. It was, it was a long courtship. Let, let me put it that way. It was not, a, it was not an instantaneous courtship. It was a very shy courtship, courtship if you will. But ultimately, uh, it, we decided it made sense to try to work together and, and do something quite original and, and different. They're, they're keen to kind of break out of the mold and, and move into some new territory and try things they haven't tried before. And I, I'm, that's something that I can, I can do. That's, that's what I think. I think it's wonderful. I, when I thought about it, I thought, you know, you have all these resources now with Gallo. It has to be wonderful for you and it has to be wonderful for Gallo. Now, yep. the, last time yep. we, the last time we talked, Randall, you, you, you had another venture. You were starting a whole I, new vineyard, as I recall. That's correct, Peter. Uh, it's called Popolishum in San Juan Batista, and that's still that's still moving forward. And oh, that's doing still going. Very okay. interesting. Still going. Yeah, interesting things there as well. Well, good. Now I want I want to tell you a Gallo story. Oh, Great. Right. <laughs> when, when I when I tell the Gallo story, at the end of it, I'll ask Anne if. She wants it to be removed from the from the broadcast, <laughs> <laughs> and, and you'll, under, you'll understand why in just a moment. Got several, it. Several several years ago, we were visiting Vanessa Julia in northeastern Italy, and uh, hooked hooked up with Lydia Bastianich and some of her friends, mm-hmm. and, we, and we we're going by several vineyards, including one that we particularly thought was splendid, and we were talking to the owner, whose name was Gallo. Yes, oh dear. Oh dear. <laughs> I, I, know where the, I know where the story is going already. Yeah. <laughs> well, well he, 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 couldn't, he, he couldn't call it Gallo. The vineyard is called Vie de Romance. Yeah. I know the wine very you know the wine well. Yeah, yeah. Mark, Marco de Grazia yeah. uh, imported it, or maybe he still imports it. He, he yeah. got a cease and desist from Gallo. It was very splendid wine. But, yes. It was a very small vineyard. <laughs> and and destined, destined to remain small, or at least yeah. to not be called Gallo. <laughs> Correct. No, that's good. I know the wine very well. It's, it's very good. Yeah, it is good. He's a sweet guy, too, you know. So, but anyhow, tell us. So anyhow, tell us about the difference between the Languedoc and the Languedoc, because Languedoc, Languedoc, yeah, they both mean the language. Grapes are in there. 
Well, the grapes are in California, so they're in neither the Languedoc or Languedoc. Um, but they're, um, California has a lot more in common with the south of France than it does with the north of France. And that was one of the intentions of the project was to try to find this link that, that links us together kind of conceptually, artistically, emotionally, whatever. Um, but the, the, the people in the south think of themselves as speaking the language of yet a, a different language, le Languedoc, the language of ak, of yes, whereas the northerners speak a, a totally different language, the langdoi, which of course becomes the language of we. Um, but there, there's a very different sensibility. You know, the southerners are much more passionate, more romantic. Um, there's, they, they have a very deep love of the land. They're, um, they, they feel their wines more intuitively. It's, 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 it's a, it's a different process, and that's that's the that's the affinity that I feel for for those wines, and those that's, those are the wines that I want to make in California for for certain wines made you know very passionately. No, it's it's, it's interesting that the, the people from Chateau Beaucastel in Chateauneuf du Pape they 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 came to the United States looking for a place to grow the grapes that they liked. And they found yes. that, and they found that in the Palo Alto region, in, cent- in the, well, I guess Paso Robles, the Central Paso Coast. Re- yeah. So, so in a, Tablos, in a, Tablos in a, Creek, in a, yes. Yes, Tablos yeah, in, Creek. In, in a sense, you're 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 following in a somewhat similar footstep. Would I, would I be right there? Well, I mean, the point. What I, what I don't want to do is replicate <clears throat> France in California. I want to find Got our. It. The, the points of identity, the points of commonality, but also the really focus on the points of difference. I want I want us to find in California our original voice and make an original wine. I mean, I think this is my critique of of the Rhone, so-called Rhone Rangers, a, a lovely organization of lovely people. Yeah, we know but, them. Yeah. Yes, they do, but they are defining themselves in terms of something that's not them. Um, okay. I think we should be the Paso Robles Rangers or the Santa Maria Valley Rangers or the Santa Cruz Rangers or the mm-hmm. San Juan Batista Rangers, not not the Rhone Rangers. That's what I'd like to see. Yeah. So that's what you're going to do? That's what I'm aiming to do, yep. Now, how does this tie in with your special vineyards we talked about before? You were looking for a new wine um, in, in that property. Well, I'm still looking and I'm still working to that end. Um, so Popola Schum in San Juan Batista is what you might call a research vineyard. And um, and it's it's really in, it's a new territory, altogether new territory. I think the language of yes is going to be maybe, I'm hoping the practical application of that research. So I'm hoping there will be a cross-pollination between the things that I'm learning in San Juan and then the things that I'm using in um, with, with Gallo at Language of Yes, which is a they've they've given me access to an extraordinary vineyard, the Rancho Real Vineyard in Santa Maria, which is a hyper cool uh, vineyard, and mostly in the climatic sense of the word. Um, but when you grow grapes in a super cool area with a very long growing season, you have the possibility of just much more delicate articulation if you will. So that, you know, that's why, you know, monocipage work in cool sites much better than warm sites. Warm sites, monocipage wines don't generally work so well. You need a blend to create complexity. But in a cool site, you can really do a lot with a single cipage. I'd like to find more complexity through through genetic diversity. I'm, I'm interested, one of the things that interests me is the idea of planting a mixed population, a genetically mixed population. And how do you explain that to to me, uh, me who's a Luddite about this stuff? Explain to me how you get this. I mean, you're cross-pollinating, you're planting, you're grafting. What are you doing? Well, grafting doesn't get you genetic complexity. It just gets you a vine that's resistant to phylloxera or nematodes or whatever. Right. Um, 
now pollinate or create or breeding a new variety will give you complex will give you a new a new genetically new uh, plant. So there's a couple of ways of doing it. You can breed altogether new varieties from by breeding two different lineages, you know, two different grape varieties and crossing them with each other, or you could do what are called self-crosses and allow the plant to pollinate itself and then take the, the offspring, which themselves are genetically, strangely genetically different from the parent, even though the, they have the same mom and dad. It's kind of like, like uh, brothers and more like siblings than uh, identical twins. So that's a way of creating diversity. Um, it's it's also slightly challenging because the offspring are not you don't you get differences and you get things that are similar and things that are quite different, but generally not necessarily better. Most of the most of the offspring are actually in some sense worse or or more problematic than the parent, but a few of them are going to be weird and strange and lovely, and those are the ones you're looking for. You're looking for the ones that are that are going to give the wine more nuance, more more Depth, I mean, I, we, we've interviewed um, apple breeders, for example, and um, they they will be at this for twenty years, yes. you know, tasting apples every day to come up with yep. something that, that, and then they then they have to ship them out to all kinds of growers to see if that can be replicated all around the country. It's like yes. It's very um, obsessive. <laughs> well, and probably I should have started about 20 years earlier if I had, if I had the wit, wit and wisdom to have done it then. I probably should have started this a little earlier in my career, but better late than never. And I'll, I'll, just, <laughs> now, I'll do it as long as I can. Randall, for, 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 for those people who are fun, interested in the fundamentals, if I read the information correctly, you're working with grape varieties which are very, very French, not a little bit California. Well, it, at a certain point, they, they kind of lose their, their – they become international citizens. I think, I think Grenache is now an international citizen, as is, as is Syrah to a certain extent. Now, Tiburin is, is definitely – well – it's a European variety. It's, it, it has not been seen on, on these shores. And it's grown in Italy under another name called Rossese in Liguria, and then, of course, in Provence as uh, Tiburin. Hmm. Now, now, you've got Sanson as well, right? Sanson, fabulous grape, Sanson. super cool grape, super cool grape, misunderstood, totally misunderstood, but uh, I think grape with fantastic potential. Well, you can fiddle with it in what way then to get it to be a full potential expression of its full potential? What will you do? Well, first get a – I've got a couple of ideas. You know, I'm first starting with the clonal material. I'm looking for clones or, or biotypes that are, are smaller clusters. I mean, Sanso is a very large cluster grape variety. It's kind of, you, know, you may know it's also a table grape. So it produces; mm-hmm. it can produce a, a cluster that will weigh more than a pound, a pound, pound and a half. So I'm looking for uh, particular clones that are more modest in their growth, and then I'm just really choking it back as far as water and fertility, just really keeping the yield down to a, yeah, that's sort of a, a dull, dull roar. I always thought so a the, lot of the worst life for a grape would be to live in Spain. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Indeed, we, 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 we were in the hills above uh, the, uh, the the region. What's it, what's it called? Like? I don't remember. It starts with an R. Rioja. Rioja. We're up. We're up on the on the mountain tops above Rioja, lo- looking at the grape the grapes growing out of. Seems like they're growing out of the stones themselves. Yes, <laughs> and, we, and we did opine that it was a hell of a way to make a living being a yes. real grape. <laughs> well, I mean that's that's one of the reasons why European wines have that earthiness or minerality. Is there's they're dry and there's there's a lot of roots and not a lot of water, and uh, there's a lot of concentration, mineral concentration that way. 
you know, when you start out on a project like this, I mean, do you have in mind what you're going after? I mean, what exactly is the goal of the the uh, quality well, of the wine or the characteristics? Yes, yes and no. You know, yes and no. It's not exactly making a wine. Is it's not exactly like baking a cake. You you can kind of move it gently, nudge it in a certain direction, but the actual outcome, the precise outcome, is really not known until until the cake is done, if you will, because there's so many factors that you that are within your control and not within your control. And in fact, the things that are most interesting about wine are the are the factors that are not in your direct control. So you know, you can control the the yeast the temperature of the fermentation, the kind of yeast that you use. But the things that are really make the wine interesting, the soil characteristics that are imparted from the vineyard, that's not that's something that's outside the control of the winemaker. He's, he's there just to kind of discover it and amplify it or accentuate it rather than create it. You know, it seems to me that, that what you're doing is a major challenge even under the most perfect conditions. But in the face <laughs> yeah. of climate change, I think it must be really hard to control all this. I mean, the, not, not control it, but you know what I mean. I mean, the, your yeah. expectations are even wilder <laughs> out there. Yeah. So what what do you do by concerning that? I mean, the, I can't remember which wine region in Italy that um, they had what was it that destroyed the whole crop for this year? It was some climate change thing. I don't remember yeah. which. Whereas the, yeah. you know, the northern California, the, apparently the smoke didn't do any harm that they could tell by yet from all the uh, the wildfires. Well, last year no, there was there was a lot of vineyards were not picked or wines were discarded. A lot of people right, didn't make right. wine last year because of the fires. And this year, so far, I think we're we're okay, but the yields are way down. Um, a lot of people are making much less wine. You know, they, they they've had a cut back on their irrigation, which is not necessarily a bad thing, um, but uh, definitely has had an impact. Uh, I mean, it's not all necessarily bad. I mean, it's 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 dire, but from a quality standpoint, um, generally less water, less irrigation often improves the quality of the wine. Um, mm-hmm. Doesn't well, improve, doesn't about improve Spain, the yield. Yeah. 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 Um, now, now this is really a, a wild move on uh, Gallo's part, but I think I can see it's to, to their advantage. Um, I mean, I can see. An expanded market just begging to be tapped for them. Yep. So, but you were working trying, close. Go ahead. They're, they're also, also trying to, to develop. They're also trying to develop their direct to consumer market. They uh, that's not something that they've historically done um, very much of. So they're they're really keen to learn how to do direct to consumer marketing. Well, there's, I mean, you no, know, in Pennsylvania, there's been an expansion of, um, of uh, the ability to, to purchase directly. Um, is this typical across the country? It's really spreading very fast. It's very that's a lot of wine is is being sold this way. A ton, as you know, the pandemic, of course, accentu- accentuated that or accelerated that process, but. Um, it's definitely here to stay. Direct e-commerce is um, is how a lot of wine is being sold. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of everything's been sold. A lot of everything, indeed. We yeah. we get we have uh, consu- consu- not consu- not subscriptions um, to um, uh, a seafood place, um, a meat place, um, a veg- two vegetable places. You know. <laughs> <laughs> There's food coming in and out of our house all the time. <laughs> some good, some not so good. I mean, there's a lot of uh, complications in e-commerce for food. I have to tell you. Now, yep, here's a question for you: what, what What was Francis Ford Coppola thinking of? I mean, he he sold out, right? I don't know. I I don't think he ever. I think he's retained. I think he retained some vineyards. He retained something. I don't know. I I don't remember what he's kept and what he sold, but I think he's 
sentimentalist for Vineyard. I, I can't imagine him selling out completely. Okay, well, I, 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 must have, I must have misunderstood what I read. Well, wasn't he a founder of Copia? Well, no, the, the funny no, uh, thing is, the very first time that Anne and Peter went to Napa Valley, we went to Inglenook, because Ingle, yep. Inglenook was one, of the, was one of the biggest winemakers in California at the time, and there was this great big barn of a place, and guess what? Decades later, Francis Ford Coppola came along and made it his house. <laughs> the old the old Inglenook wines were great in the sixties and seventies. Right. I, I don't think they they did much after that, but um, right. certainly back then they were sensational. Well, that's what that's what we were tasting because that's what we that's what we thought California wines were like. Also, also Louis Martini Mountain Red. Yep. <laughs> and, and which is which is owned by Gallo, owned yeah, by Gallo, with, as you know. With some, uh, I love him. We're somewhat ashamed of the fact that we we drank Gallo Hardy Burgundy and uh, no wine before its time. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> yes. That was before we got the message that cigars were the right wines to buy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the the Ida at Little Washington has a new wine director now. I mean, that's a uh-huh. huge wine laws and and uh, I mean everything's pretty well represented except that she's going to expand um, representation in um, um, of South South American wines and something Hmm. else yeah Hmm. so they must I I can't what I know about different wine regions is changing so fast I don't know what to believe now because of all the differences in, in um, well, climate and, and other kinds of natural disasters and political upheavals. And all kinds of mm-hmm. stuff. So I don't know what the, what's really um, defining each of these regions now. It used to be fairly clear, but not now. Yeah. The wine world has gotten suddenly very, very complicated. Much and inf- seemingly infinite, seemingly infinite. Yeah, well, we we've I tried to interview some people, um, and, and I haven't got really good response from um, uh, black winemakers, black vendors, mm-hmm. because apparently they were locked out of, of their own um, vineyards and things with some kind of a, a tricky political move. It was a guy called McDonald. Was it McDonald? Oh, he's he's busy. He's really been a success with what he's, he's doing. In, he's in he's in Texas. I Mac. Think, isn't, he? Isn't, hmm? he in, isn't he in Texas? He's from Texas, but okay. he's uh, right. he's in California now. Okay. So, but oh, right. he's yeah, head of some organization. Yeah. There's an organization now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we interviewed a woman, didn't we, Rabbit? Who uh, represents um, black vendors and organizations? We did. Yes, we did. I can't remember her I can't name. Remember, She's I can't very famous. Her name, we did. We did talk to someone. I think she was more into wine service than she was into. Oh, she was wine. a song. That was a. She was a song. Yeah. I think she. Yeah, but but Mac himself is just—he's too busy. We can't even pin him down for a date. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, I mean, it was a every, flu. Every, everybody, everybody's too busy these days, I'm afraid. Yeah, what do you think's happening? I mean, uh, you well, think the people well, have more time since they're working at home, and of course, soon as how long that'll we're, happen. We're, we're glad that Randall Graham isn't too busy to talk to us. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Peter. No. And we, 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 we hope you'll come back when you have things in a bottle that you're proud of that we can taste, and then, and then we'll know you were successful. Well, I don't know if this is absolutely the definition of success, but we we released the 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 language of yes, pink wine rosé yesterday, and it's sold out. out. It's sold out in an hour. One hour in an hour. Oh wow! An hour, yes. Granted, we didn't. There wasn't very much to sell, but but nevertheless, (laughs) Randall, you're uh, you're always a delight to talk to. Always something interesting going on. I hope you won't be a stranger and you'll come back and talk to us about 
Of course. More, more of your project when there is more of it to report on. Yes. Well, there, there will be a uh, release in October of the, of the red wines of the Grenache and the Syrah. Uh-huh. By the way, they, they, Gallo has reminded me and to always mention that we have a, there's a website so people, if they want to get information about the wines or, or, or buy the wines, they need to sign up to the website to get the newsletter and such. And the website is? Languageofyeswine.com. Language of yes. Language of yes. Wine dot com. Yep. Okay. Yes. Language of yes. Wine singular. Wine singular. Yes. Dot com. Okay. Yeah, I was just on that actually. That, that website. Um, that's why I found yeah. out that you were sold out. We also got a message through to you that said. Where are you, Randall? You're supposed to be on the phone. <laughs> oh yeah, I was finishing. Yes, I was finishing my breakfast. But thank you uh, for the reminder. I, I, I didn't see it, but thank you. Yeah, well, I hope you're having a good time because I mean, you've been at this for a long time. Yeah, no, it's it's very stimulating. I, at this stage of my life, I think I it would be nice to slow down a teeny tiny bit. I've got a but I've got a kid who wants to go to college. He's just uh-huh. actually just starting school in two weeks. Um, so where is she going? See, she's going to um, Scripps down in Southern California, in Claremont. Vaccinating, demanding vaccination or what? I think they're, they're, the kids either have to be vaccinated or they have to be tested every week. Well, yeah, it complicates things, yeah. Indeed. So, well, um, I, I wish you success and uh, wish, wish her a good freshman year in, in college. Yes, thank you. Thanks okay, so and let us know when, when you, you want to come back on. Okay, perfecto. Thanks, Randall. Thank good, you. Always. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye now. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. And next up, we're going to talk to Anya Fernald, who um, is going to talk to us about her company, Belcampo Meats. And she's almost, she's almost as much a, an enigma as Randall Graham. Well, no, I mean, she she has an incredible background. Um, she's going to be telling us about it and her traipses, traipsing around Italy and her experiences there. And her, her intention, her missions, uh, farms, butcher shops, restaurants, um, and, and, and a real... Uh, the philosophy that beats the moment in a most spectacular way. Very inspirational. Let's listen to Anya. Yes, Anya. <laughs> Fernald, you have, I mean, I can't believe that you started this operation from nothing. I'm talking about um, Belcampo Farms. Um, you started from scratch, and it's it's a huge operation now, isn't it? Um, I mean, in terms of acreage, yeah, we operate uh, 27,000 acres in our core operations, and then we lease another 11,000 beyond that, so 30, almost 40,000 acres of organic farmland in California. Well, congratulations to you. That's very good to hear. <laughs> and you're in the northern part of the state, right? Correct. We're right on the border of Oregon with the farming operations. Oh, right, right on the border. Okay. Oh, right on the border. Good. Not, not near any burning stuff, I hope. Surrounded by burning stuff, my friend. Oh, oh dear, really? Dear. And it's yeah, the hot. On the farm haven't seen the mountain in like, I mean, the horizon. You can't. I mean, it's been a month plus. They haven't seen the horizon. Oh, oh that's just oh, horrible. Absolutely horrible. Will, will it? Will it have a long-term effect on your flock? Or your Whatever, whatever um, you call them. We've had, I mean, we've had serious fire issues for the past three years and um, oh four years. We did 
move our entire chicken production to another farm for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons was that our farm had so much smoke that the chickens were really struggling. The smaller animals struggle more um, and struggling with stress and and not gaining weight because of stress. So that definitely was a factor for us um, in in that decision. So that was a big deal. We also lost 11,000 acres where we raised our lamb and had mother cows. We lost 11,000 acres last year to fire. And saying lost, there was no buildings burned. It was just, you know, seasonal dry grassland that went from being <laughs> brown to being black, right? So you're talking about losing, losing like a season and a half in that. Oh, my. It's just terrible. Now, um, what, I mean, what, what got you started in this? I mean, this, this is not something that somebody does every day, like, oh, I'll, I'll buy 40,000 acres of farmland and I'll grow cows and sheep. And yeah, yeah, well, the, the interesting thing about Anya is that she, has no, she was not raised in a farm family. That's what's unusual, I think. Yeah, so people often think that this is a multi-generational family operation. Um, I co-founded the company in 2012 with my business partner who did own about 6,000 acres of what's now Belcampo Farms at the time. And he was interested in making an investment to build something that would make the farm profitable and allow us to sell and market and, and build a business based on truly regenerative, long-term thinking agriculture. So I, yeah, go ahead. So it's been a, you know, in my journey, you know, I've actually worked in animal agriculture for um, 25 years. Uh, So my career in animal ag and in agriculture predates Belcampo by more than a decade. And I, you were all over Southern Europe, weren't you? Yeah, I worked as a cheesemaker, and then I worked in microfinance for small-scale food enterprises. So I worked for basically oh, wow. a, like a kind of a foundation based in in northern Italy that was funded by the government back when the Italian government had a little more cash than they do right now. And it was a it was basically helping small-scale food enterprises become compliant with the new European Union regulations, and then getting them exported to countries. Um, that were interested in kind of artisan sustainable food. And it's kind of taking the Italian experience of marketing value, you know, really high value specialty foods and using them to market foods from around the world that had amazing stories and unique connections to different regions. So I did that and I got a real like generalist knowledge of food. But even in that time, I was working a lot with salami and um raw beef producers actually in northern Italy with the Piedmontese beef breed and Tuscan Maremma beef producers. So I got a real generalist knowledge of lots of different segments in agriculture. Um, but I think it all, you know, in your life, you know, you just you kind of go from step to step as you're walking up the staircase of your kind of achievements and then only afterwards, I think, looking back, do we sometimes see really clear through lines. You know, and so for me, it's like, well, Belcampo, yeah, it was a collaboration with my business partner. It was all sorts of, it was a great opportunity in a moment when I was really looking for a big challenge in my life. But it also was a culmination of all of my own experiences. I think the one that's most kind of relevant is with a really personal story, which is when I moved back to the U.S. in 2000, end of 2005, early 2006, I was really struggling to, um, eat healthy. Like I gained a bunch of weight. I wasn't feeling good. I didn't feel like myself. I was foggy. Like I just wasn't on my game. And I had been less like tiger when I was in Italy and working all the time and getting stuff done. And I came back and I felt like I just fell off the horse. And I realized that it had to do with my food. And I eat a lot of meat. I just kind of like, I like meat. Um, I've always thrived on meat. When I was vegan, it was not great for me. I was vegan and vegetarian for a while, and I, I just I don't thrive on a on a low animal protein diet. So I just actually started to buy this is early in my return to the U.S. buy meat for my own use by buying whole cows and uh, orchestrating the distribution of that product. In doing that. I got a taste of how complicated it is to sell meat and the regulatory complexity. You know, like I got a real taste of what it's like, and that seeded for me many elements of what Bill Campos sought to address. Yeah, I mean, you have a distinct 
mission, and I could, I could tell from the collateral materials that accompanied the samples. Um, I mean, it's all stuff that I support, I have to tell you, so I'm, I'm, pre- I'm prejudiced in favor of Bel Campo, just to start with, but it also tastes good. Now, tell me this. You say um, you somewhere I read where you have farms, butcher shops, and restaurants. Restaurants? Mm-hmm. Oh, and we, we also sell through e-commerce on belcampo.com and in a few grocery stores. Okay. Now, um, let's get to this, the mission. I mean, you do so much of what's right with your product that it's, it's overwhelming, actually, for most people to even contemplate. I mean, you're organic. You're good for the planet. Uh, tell us some of your specific issues with mission. So the the mission of the planet is to create meat that you can feel great about. I mean, the mission of Belcampo is is I want to create a meat that people feel is good for their body. They feel okay to great about how the animals are treated. And I say okay to great because animals die when meat's created, right? So I don't I think there's some people who are never going to feel great about it, right? But you feel as good yeah. as you could given your beliefs about the animals handling and processing. And then the third thing is that you're you're absolutely confident that it's great for the planet. And the biggest kind of data point around the planet piece is that the company is climate positive. So the entire net sequestration of the business is positive. All of the FedExing for our e-commerce, the trucks carting meat around, the operations of our restaurants and butcher shops, all of that is actually offset by the carbon sequestration of our regenerative grazing practices. It's pretty That's incredible, an achievement. Right? That's a huge yeah. achievement. Not easy. I might add. So your, That's your a massive thing for us. So your cows don't don't fart. Our cows do fart, um, <laughs> and they they do. And you know the methane is a two x impact on it's just pure carbon going out. That's why methane's bad. But what happens is when you have what's called managed grazing, which means you don't just dump cows in a field and let them go at it, but you manage the grazing in a way that is cyclical, so you're optimizing the growth phase of the grass to encourage the grass to sequester as much carbon as possible, okay? So when you're managing rotational grazing systems to optimize for carbon sequestration, when you do that, you're actually encouraging or you're moving animals to areas where grass is in a growth phase. You're damaging the grass slightly um, by having animals eat it. Then the grass regrows, uh, and it regrows by pulling nutrients from the air and the earth, right? And the nutrients from the air it pulls is actually carbon. It takes the carbon, it pushes the carbon through its plant structure and into the root system, and the carbon ends up in the soil, right? That's carbon sequestration. The carbon that goes in the soil, the reason the plant does that is that the carbon actually feeds the soil microbiome, makes the organic matter and the soil denser increases just a bunch of fertility markers for the soil, and that in turn allows the plant to grow. So what you're doing when you're practicing regenerative agriculture, it's not just, oh, you got you have a bunch of cows out in a patch of dirt with a fence around it. You're not going to sequester any carbon. The, the earth doesn't just take carbon, right? What has to happen is plants are the interface between the atmosphere and the earth that allow plants as this magic conduit to draw carbon from the environment and put it into the earth. Yeah, it's it's similar to the process, similar to the r- rotational grazing that the Jamisons do love, right? Yeah, I was just thinking of the Jamisons. They're our dear friends who, um, uh, they started out with not quite so, so much of an analysis. Um, they were a couple of hip, a couple of hippies that ended up making the best lamb in the country. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, they they fell onto this concept of the um, uh, removing the pasture and so forth and so on. Um, it, they were, they uh, because, were, because basically Suki thought it was pretty stupid to have to go out and raise the stuff and then bring it back and have the lambs eat it and have to transport it again. It was just a matter yeah. of practicality without understanding the science of it. So, but it's, really, you, well, well you bring up a great point. The what? You bring up a really good point, which is that it sort of makes sense, right? Yeah. And it, you look at what's traditionally called, like you guys are both in food, I mean, the concept of transhumance, and transhumance yes. is a migration yes. with animals. We, like we, oh, we know it well. <laughs> we, we spent, or have spent quite a lot of time in Italy. Uh, 
in Spain. Okay, so the, that transumanza, that's how you say it in Italian. Like, yeah. The transumanza, this is a classic thing. When I lived in Sicily in my 20s, I did transumanza with people that I work with because I worked in dairies, right? And we would yeah. go on these like six to ten mile walks with cows. You know, these are small holders, so I'm talking like four cows, right? And you'd walk mm-hmm. from one pasture, and it was typically in the springtime or in the fall time, and you were either walking up or down, depending, you know? Um, and you would walk <laughs> towards where the grass was greener. And as you walked to where the grass was greener, um, you would see, you know, lots of other farmers doing the same thing. And we do something similar at Belcampo now, which is, you know, we're trucking animals in big trucks from one pasture to another, right? But um, that, that's, that's really the, the fundament of it is you're actually kind of rough. And that's really what wildebeest and bison and things do too, you know, is they actually track the grass and they go from one place to another where it's going from being slightly, you know, slightly better to even better to even better by walking higher up the mountain or further down the mountain. Yeah. And they're not doing that. You know, what those animals are doing is they're saying, I'm optimizing for caloric intake per minute spent munching. And what they're looking for is sweeter grass. Uh-huh. Makes sense. Sweeter grass is grass at the peak of, of seasonality. And then when you eat that sweeter grass, which is in that big growth phase, that's the grass that also has the greatest potential for carbon sequestration. Good. Wait, where was it? We... we uh, we we were saw what was the name of the place we were staying in um, uh, in Italy, Rabbit, where they had um, they had the uh, museum. The, the, was it Transumanza? Yeah, yeah. Well, trans- who was he? Who was he called? It was, it was the province. Museo della Transumanza. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, but That's anyhow, amazing. Where uh, was that? Did they develop, did the people you were traveling with, did they develop uh, their own culture, sort of a subculture, subculture about um, even with affecting language and so forth? Because I read that someplace. Sweetheart, I, I was, oh, I'm sure. I was, you know, I where to, I live. I was going to mention the encounter we had with the herding dogs. Oh, yes, the herding dogs. <laughs> Tell me about that. Remember, well, we saw this huge flock of, uh, of cows. That must have been cows. Sheep, I think. Yeah. Sheep up on, up on the hillside, and there was a, there was a dog leading the way. Well, we, I wanted, in the worst kind of way, to get a photograph <laughs> of, of, this, of this herd. And I made it with the photograph... 50 meters before the dog. <laughs> and the dogs were attacking. The dog, the, so the they dog, knew what the, they wanted to. The, dog, the dogs did not want me to take a picture of their cows. Now, I, I have a question here. Um, is, you know, it, what you do is so hard, so difficult. I mean, how, how likely is it that more and more um, farmers will adopt these techniques and practices? I think that the issue is around climate and climate change. Mm-hmm. I think the, the mandate from consumers has been a weak pulse. It's been a weak, it's been a weak pulse. It's been yeah. some believers, some kind of radical, like your friends who back to the landers and stuff. Like they've been out there, but they're kind of on the fringe, right? And with the increasing tenor of the, like, intensity of the call to action around climate, my hope is that this is going to be a moment of sea change. Well, I'm hoping. I'm really hoping. And and I think this is a time to pop in that actually uh, your products are exceptionally delicious as well. So it's not only healthier, it's not only better for the planet, but they're also better tasting. Amazing. I agree. And I'm totally biased, but I also still agree. You you what? I'm sorry, I didn't get that. You're totally... I'm absolutely biased, but I entirely agree. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, isn't that the big point? Because you're not going to be able to convince anybody unless you have a, a better product, a better tasting a more delicious product. Yes. Because it's not easy, you know. I mean, um, I mean there are totally easier agree. ways to do it. I mean, there's, you can take shortcuts and easier. Um, but, you know, and the other thing is that 
it all makes sense, but it's sort of talking to, to an anti-vaxxer about and trying to convince him otherwise. But the the, the thing is that um, I've, I've judged contests of, of say, a grass-fed beef, okay? And there's such a difference, noticeable, that I can't believe that anybody could taste all these different things and not realize that the, the turn, everything turns on this taste issue. I mean, they may all be raised on grass, but that's not going to make them taste absolutely better because there are all kinds of other parts of it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. So, so, I mean, I think that what I'm saying is that um, the practices, I mean, like I have a cousin that's very involved with permaculture, you know, but um, it, it, it's the processes are interesting to pass on or you might be able to get people to try them, but the quality issue is where it's going to be hard enforcing the standards. That's decided in the marketplace, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the so in the case of our operation, we work with other supplier farms, partner farms. We we call them you know supply network, and they've it's not that challenging. I mean. Listen, and we're working with farms that are already well on the path to doing things the right way. They're either organic or have some rotational grazing or some, you know, regenerative practices in place, right? Um, so that's not as much the challenge. Um, it's that the the biggest issue is getting the consumer to understand the premium associated yeah. with right, right, right. the environmental pieces. And well, it's also like the American consumer has become habituated to meat that has just no flavor. Exactly, like pork. Let's <laughs> talk about pork. Yeah, and, and the steak, too. Like, I, I often I do a lot of culinary content on my Instagram page, and, um, and I get so often, it's like, well, what did you put on the steak? And I'm like, you know, salt. That's really all you should put. If you if you have to put anything more than salt on a steak, you need a different steak. Yeah. Well, you know, and, my, my, like, my you lamb friend, I am something, but like if you're spending that kind of money, like save your spices for the offcuts that you got to kind of add some jus to, yeah, right? right? Like, but with yep. a steak, you should be talking like simplicity, salt and pepper. Call it done. Well, I was talking to my friends at Jamison's Farm, the lamb people, about. Somebody sent us samples of um, a, a lamb that was being marketed as, as not tasting like lamb, so that more no. people would want to eat it. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I, I said it was just awful. Like, it was awful. Hmm? We've made, you know, I, I look at the amount of like recipes for chicken that have a saucing protocol akin to tofu. Right? <laughs> well, you're thinking, well, why? Well, we made our chicken taste like tofu. We basically made it like a plant-based alternative meat. You know, it's so bland. Again, really good meat should have flavor. Getting our palate, so it's getting the, the American consumer to say, wow, I like this more flavorful kind of substrate as opposed to the super bland one, mm -hmm. and I'm willing to pay a premium for it. That's challenging. Yeah, well, that's uh, you're leading me right into this question of, of um, marketing. We've been getting an awful lot of um, cookbooks, uh, uh, veg vegetarian and vegan cookbooks. Um, and we've had lots of, um, of, of samples of this um, faux meat or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. um, where do you think the markets go? I can throw in there this kind of thing of ordering online that we've been through with the pandemic. I mean, a lot of, of, of um, producers have, have pivoted to online uh, offerings uh, away from just the individual chefs and restaurants and into just general um, retail marketing. Uh, how has it all affected your business? So the online piece or the plant-based piece? Well, that's two of them. Let's do let's okay. do plant based. I mean, I found it actually. I got we got two samples, and we compared um, regular ground beef and some of this fake meat stuff. And actually, the fake meat one was, was tastier, but all kinds of things were put into it to make it taste like that. 
So mm-hmm. that's worrisome. What kind okay. of ground meat were you using? It was... Um, Beyond, Beyond it was, Meat, I think, wasn't it? No, that was the fake, the faux one, Beyond Meat, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, we were using, you know, really good whole foods, ground uh-huh. beef. Okay. You know. Yep. Yeah. Um, we we had some awesome lamb, by the way. I don't know where it could possibly have come from. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> your, your lamb is good. Our lamb definitely doesn't have, like, all lamb flavor removed. Yeah, so the question for me, the biggest issue that you're going to see with a plant-based meat in our space, the feedback that I get that's most that I would be most concerned about is the amount of it that's hyper-processed. I mean, really all of it's hyper-processed. Right. Um, and I think that hyper-processed foods have been shown to be the single most kind of devastating <laughs> change to the American diet in the past 30 years, hyper- and ultra-processed mm-hmm. foods. So I think that there, it's a long I, – I get, though, that the, the pendulum definitely feels like the plant guys are winning right now in terms of messaging and so much, so much um, negative information about natural meat. Um, and, okay, that's fine. You know, we can, we can process that and handle that and do the firepower around the fact that our meat's climate positive. But then the other piece – um, is that that meat is distinctly unhealthy because of the hyper-processed element. Yeah, so that's kind of, of the piece on, on, the, on, on that meat. I just think for many kids, I also just think it's like, hey, come over to my house and enjoy a barbecue of something that you can get at Burger King. Uh-huh. I, I don't know. Like that to me, I wouldn't feel comfortable serving anything that's on the menu of one of the big five fast food companies at my home, right? I, so I, mean, like, I, I mean, I, I agree with them. With, um, with you, yeah. but I'm not a typical customer either. Then the other, on the e-com piece, our business shifted radically. You know, we went from having, I think, 9% of sales through delivery in the restaurants to 30%, and we launched an e-commerce company, right? So those are some big shifts that happened. Okay, big and shift. you think it'll stay, it'll hold, it won't go back to, I think it's going to hold. I don't know. I don't. I don't think it's going to hold. I. I have to say, during the height of the pandemic, I was wow. Instacart's so great. I'm never going back. The second I could go back to the local grocery store and squeeze the tomatoes and smell things yeah. and notice a new milk brand that I wanted my kids to try, I was totally back there in an instant, and I'm shopping more than I used to because I kind of missed it. Um, so I don't know well, how much of that shifting. I think there's going to be a. I, I think there's going to be some shifts for sure, but I think many of the consumer trends are going to pop back pretty quickly. Although the second surge that we're in right now may really hammer things. I yeah, don't know. I mean, I think I'm up in the air on that one. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, people can, I mean, like you said, you forgot about how to get into a conference call. I think people are going to forget how to go about going to the store yeah. and shopping. <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. You know. And squeezing the tomatoes, which you shouldn't do, actually. Then. Yeah, that's fair. I'm, I break all those rules. I need to do those, yeah. So, I mean, where do you go from here? Do you have, like, I want to mention things about um, your your central farm, is that you actually invite people year-round, I mean, if we get over this pandemic, to actually come and see um, the, the farm in progress. I mean, this is... This is a big thing that I re- remembered, you know, when uh, raising a family is all these city kids have no idea what a farm's like, you know. True. And True. yeah, and yeah, and uh, but you have now you've programs where you get people in, and what other mm-hmm. you have all kinds of programs to, to uh, pursue your mission. Tell us about some of them. So we, we do um, culinary education events at the farm. Um, we've got some coming up uh, in the next two months, one at the end of uh, – or sorry, the first and the last week in September or two, and they're called meat camps. It's basically a culinary immersion. Um, and then me personally, um, on my Instagram, which is at Anya Fernald, um, you can see lots of good kind of culinary demos or at the Belcampo account at, at Belcampo Mico. We offer stays at the farm. You can book them via Hip Camp. It sounds like fun. Yeah. yeah, and they're just beautiful, beautiful tents that are set up with really comfortable beds and really cozy, and you wake up and hear the coyotes and see the cows, and it smells amazing, and everyone's like, I can't believe this is a beef operation with over 3,000 cows, and it's like, yeah, this is incredible, and this is the way <laughs> agriculture can be, right? Um, yeah. 
so it's been a really great thing to open people's minds, um, you know, to what, what agriculture can look like. Um, so that's a really a, the, a piece of the Belcampo story that I'm super proud of, is having kind of created this connection to that style of agriculture. And you might um, well say what the website is while we're at it. Oh, sure, belcampo.com. And get on there and try those, try that lamb, ground lamb and the ground beef and all the good things. Um, it's, it's you a, know, your hot dogs are pretty good. I'm not a hot dog aficionado. Thank but you. They are. They agree. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think it's you know it's exciting for me to be able to to um, educate about how meat should taste, about you know flavors and quality, and and cooking with quality meat, cooking with grass fed and finished meat. Um, so that's really my mission is to you know share what flavor can taste like and what traditional foods can taste like. Um, it's healthier, it's better for the planet, it's better for animals. So it's like it's now you're just about teaching people that they can use the ground beef just like any other ground beef, and then with a the steak, it's a couple of quick tips like going to cook a little bit faster because it has a little bit less fat. It's going to be more flavorful, so don't put tons of stuff on it. You know, kind of simple <laughs> tips like that can really make a difference in, in turning you from a corn-fed and finished um, steak lover to a grass-fed and finished steak lover. Exactly. So now we just have to solve the problem of these uh, wildfires and the, and the heat waves. I mean, it's the intense heat. Yeah. It's definitely um, the drought is going to be massive for us this year and very costly and complex. And, um, you know, regenerative agriculture, though, ironically, is, is actually better suited to drought, even though it's a hard year for us. Regenerative agriculture definitely performs better on, in, in years of volatility than conventional ag. Well, that's good to know, too. I mean, I, I can see what would happen. It's like... Um yeah, I mean, that has to be, but this is very unnatural, what's going on with the climate. I mean, there's wildfires. I mean, I, 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 we talked about Italy and Spain. I mean, it's, it's a nightmare. And Sicily, my God. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. Terrible. So, well, listen, I really am glad to find you, and, and I hope our listeners um, give ordering from you a shot here and particularly I hope that they learn and they go on and, and, and all this great information that, that you provide through your website and, and um, blogs and so forth that they can learn where we're headed and I hope that's exactly where we're headed wonderful well, I'm here for it yes anything, thank you so much anything for we forgot Anything nope, you, you're awesome. Okay, well, you are too. And um, I wish you a, a cooling down period at this point. Anya yeah, Fernand. And some water. Campo is the name. And uh, you're sure to be impressed with the, the health, the flavor, and the, the health for the planet as a result of using this product. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. Bye. Good girl, great mission. Um, you know what you're doing. Carry on. <laughs> well, We're so behind it. It, it. The interesting thing is that both both of these entrepreneurial types are in are in California. Fortunately, the wildfires. In the they game. are indeed, and uh, it's re- it's remarkable that we we're, we're able to engage them in this conversation. I hope you are interested. I hope you'll watch developments, both of these places, because they're very going to be very interesting part of the food and drink future. Yes. Well, join us again next week, same time, same place. And until then, bye-bye. <laughs>